guys are barrels of fun. And then I just went like total like George Brett pine tar. This is section 422. Welcome from the comforts of our homes. This is the section 422 podcast episode number 52. Derek Van Riper here with Will Salmon. On this episode, we catch up with former brewer Jeff Cirillo. I think we realized in uh, last week's episode, which is our franchise history draft, that there was one era that was very lightly represented, and it was the back half of the 90s in particular, Will. I mean, Robin Yount and Paul Molitor, of course, were in the organization in the first part of the decade, but as things played out, uh, there were a few guys that kind of had to bridge the gap from those two Hall of Famers to the wave of prospects that really ushered in a, a new era of Brewers baseball in the mid to late 2000s, the Prince Fielder, Ricky Weeks, J.J. Hardy, Corey Hart Brewers that we later saw. And Jeff was one of those players. He was easily the best player of the decade based on war. And I think the thing that really stood out to me as we were going through our draft last week and as we were preparing for this show today is that not only was Jeff Cirillo a great hitter, but he was an outstanding defensive third baseman as well. Yeah, he was just all around terrific. I mean, we're also talking about a guy who had a 10% walk rate, but his strikeout rate was only 11% too. So, I mean, we're just talking about an all-around terrific hitter, all-around player. Um, I mean, this is a guy who, yeah, he didn't hit the ball out of the yard a whole lot during his career in any given season, but he was just remarkably consistent when he was healthy uh, year to year, uh, often producing high averages, high on base, close to 200 hits year in, year out for the Brewers, and just an important player for their history because, like you said, without him, I mean, the, the 90s were pretty bleak as it, as it is for the Brewers. Imagine if he was not their, their, uh, their player, if he was not their third baseman during that time. That could have been a lot worse. Um, not that it was that great, but it could have been more, even worse. I just think about those teams, and I'm a little bit, amazed at how much I love baseball having grown up on the late 90s Brewers as one of the first teams that uh, that I followed really closely as a kid and I think one thing that helped in that era uh, of course was the home run race between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa so I think what the Brewers might have lacked in star power in that part of the decade the league as a whole kind of more than made up for because you had uh, both McGuire and Sosa, you had Bonds and Griffey, and the kind of the, the peak of a lot of those players uh, overlapped a, a week time in Brewers history. But it was fun talking to Jeff because I, one of the questions I asked him in the interview, people will hear it in just a couple minutes, was uh, pertaining to the rabbit ball and just asking him how he would fare facing big league hitters today because Jeff's a scout. Uh, with the Anaheim Angels, and you know, he's a coach of his sons, and it's just really interesting to kind of get the perspective of someone who still sees a lot of modern pitchers, right? I think a lot of former players, uh, they, they watch from home, but they don't have a job in the game anymore, and I think you can still appreciate the current crop of talent when it's a part of your job, as it is for, for Jeff at this point. And he was such a different type of hitter than like the guys that we see these days where he was hitting the ball to all fields and he was doing it successfully. I mean, again, this is a guy who hit 
66 home runs in the 90s. And we're talking about him being the best player of the Brewers 90s. He hit 66 bombs. That was it. And he didn't have to hit any more than that to, to be to, to win that crown and, and to be that guy and to be remembered fondly. And so that was a really interesting question uh, that you posed to him is just how he would fare. And, and really just from his vantage point, too, I thought it was kind of interesting what he, what he had to say just about how he goes about understanding his job as it pertains to the success, because it's such a subjective thing, scouting, right? Um, like, what? How, how do you know if you're successful at it? How is it working? Um, how are you uh, sort of taking what you're trying to give to a guy and seeing if that if that works for him and his specific skill set it's, it's it's challenging and it was really interesting to hear him sort of speak on a couple of those issues all right we are very pleased to be joined by former big leaguer former brewer jeff cirillo here in section 422 jeff thanks for taking the time to join us today no problem nothing but time yeah <laughs> we're all kind of in that same boat right now which kind of leads me to my first question uh, what have you been doing to help pass the time while in isolation because i imagine this time of year would be very active for you having three sons who play of course having uh, scouting responsibilities like this is just a very different sort of march and april for you for sure i mean even today i was i texted my son who's down in la and uh going to school he's you know, not in school, obviously they're doing online, but he, uh, it came up in my, in my calendar that the Rockies were playing at the Dodgers today. And, you know, normally he, he can sneak away for a couple games and go to the Dodger games with me. And just, it's kind of a fun experience. One of the benefits I get from scouting is, you know, I get to pick my schedules and I get to go to a lot of games down at Dodger stadium or in Anaheim and, and see two of my boys. The question I think we have from the position of a former player is like, if, if you were a player and you were stuck at home right now like how would you be preparing for the upcoming season i mean with so many resources that players rely on gyms shared facilities uh being inaccessible right now like what could you do to keep yourself prepared for the time when things get up and running again boy that's a good question well hopefully most of them probably have access to a facility and and um you know i know that it's a a non-essential thing but i think that this they have a key to the to the facility that I, I'm I'm guessing that a lot of them are still you know using the the you know the six feet awareness and then the social distancing. But you know I still think that they're getting their reps in. Uh, uh, as far as running around, I'm not sure, but they're, they're still getting their reps in and they're still keeping their arms in shape for sure. Hey Jeff, uh, you had mentioned just the we had talked just now about scouting. Having gotten the opportunity to listen to you on the broadcast for the Brewers during spring training, I was wondering how like you're able to kind of jug both of those things, uh, and how one you got involved in the scouting aspect, and then two how you kind of got involved also now with contributing to the Brewers t- broadcast on television. Well, it's one of those ones that that, that I know that, that Rock I do the fantasy camp before spring training in February with the Brewers, and 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 Rock was not able to to do that because of the the heart surgery stuff. And I, I, BA reached out to me, Brian Anderson. He, and he talked about, you know, that they needed a bench. They needed some, some games and kind of a front fill for rock until he was, you know, cleared to go full, full board. I mean, it's a tough, tough job. I mean, if they're doing 142 of the 162 games, uh, you know, even, even doing it after three hours, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's exhausting. It's a super fun and then everything else. And you're just basically talking baseball, uh, but as far as the balancing goes, it was one of those ones that was going to, he needed some front load. So it wasn't going to be many games and Jenkins, Jeff Jenkins and I were going to split, uh, I think two of the first road trips, 
basically. And so that's how that was going to go. And, you know, but hopefully down the road, you know, there could be something there, you know, Jeff Jenkins and myself both, you know, we love the Brewers and it's kind of where we made our name and, and we, we love to, to give back in a, in a way. And it's always been with the Milwaukee Brewers. I'd certainly hope so too, because again, as just a listener, I became a smarter listener of the game just by hearing what you had to say and what you had to bring to the broadcast. And I enjoyed how you incorporated some stuff along the way as far as what you picked up on in scouting. And I was just wondering, why did you get into the scouting aspect of your career and what did you have to work on the most in order to feel like you were succeeding at that job? Uh, that's a very subjective question as far as the scouting goes, because, uh, you know, what I see might be different than someone else sees. And it's very hard analytically to to like know if you're doing a good job. I mean, what we do is we just, you know, you go in and you see a group of 25 guys that are on the roster for five days and you write up a report on what you see. Um, you know, that being said, it was amazing that when I was doing the broadcast, cause I did the broadcast before with the Brewers back in the day. It's just, it was hard because, you know, Bill wanted to do all the games and, you know, living in Seattle. So the work was, you know, few and far between. So I, I still wanted to be involved in the game. And I just know a lot of players that can't get back in the game after they've been away for three or four years because the landscape of the, the general managers and, and, and the people that are running the show now, you know, it just changes so quickly. And, and if you don't have a personal relationship with some of these guys, it's very hard to get back in. One of the things I've thought a lot about recently, Jeff, is just how much the game has changed from you know, the span of your career. You broke in in 94 with the Brewers. Uh, your career came to an end in, in 2007. But even just since 2007, the amount of tech available and the advanced stats and the resources that uh, players and coaches and analytics departments all have at their disposal has changed exponentially. Uh, how have you been able to synthesize that information uh, in scouting and coaching, given that it can seem kind of overwhelming at times with the amount of things that are out there? Oh, it's a great question. I mean, exactly. It can be overwhelming. I mean, there's stuff that, that, that even I'm learning. Um, just, I mean, just simple stuff as far as, you know, if you golf, right, they're, they're, they're putting on these launch monitors and they're analyzing your bat. You know, to where, you know, this is the bat. They're doing bat fittings now, and then they can have the data. And, and players are visual learners. And if you can show me that I can use a 34, 33 ounce bat and I can get it through the, the zone with the same force like with a 34, 31, and you can show me data that, that I'm swinging it the same and the, and the velocity and I have a better exit, exit speed to the ball, you know, I'm in. But, you know, every, and, and this is just a small aspect of that. But this simple thing is like a golf fitting to a bat fitting, and then you can show me the, the data on a track, man. I'm like, that's very valuable information that I could have used. As you think about that from a coaching perspective, though, too, how do you synthesize that for young players in particular? I imagine young players want to pick up that data and they want to use it as much as they can. But how do you sort of foster a healthy relationship between using what matters and, and not reading too much into raw numbers. That's weird because when, when I had a hitting coach and as I was, a, and I was if I was in a slump, he'd say like, you know, you really got to feel the head and get the ball and, and you want to think about really pulling the head through and hitting like hard rounders at the third base. And I'm like, whoa, that's, that might've been the way you grew up because, you know, back in the day, these guys and, and their theory was the bigger the bat, the better the wood. So you don't have these guys that were six foot. I'm not a big guy by any means. I'm a six foot, 200 pound man. 
you know, so pulling a 34, 34 ounce bat up there to the plate, it would feel like a log. And I'm like, I feel like I'm not a good hitter. And some of these older guys, they'd use this heavier wood and they'd like get the head out. And now today's player, you know, they're, you know, they have these, you know, launch angles and they're trying to scoop up under the ball. You know, where I was taught, it was like, let the ball travel, get deep and, you know, line drive down. And today it's line drive up and not even line drive up. It's elevate and celebrate and get the ball up in the air. So, and I've watched guys and I, and I work with guys and, and sometimes it can be very confusing for me. Uh, if I'm, you know, you're questioning your own skill set, and if I'm teaching it correctly, because, you know, when, when I'd be in the cage and I'd be working off a tee and a lot of teams don't even use tees anymore, you know, and then we'd be trying to hit the L screen and that's where the pitcher throws the ball, you know, up in the L screen and up, you know, to the corners and, you know, and I set it up with this one kid and he was a first round pick of the Diamondbacks and, and he was like, nope. And he'd be hitting the ball in the top of the net. And then he'd look over at the, the, the track man data, the hit tracks or whatever machine they're using. And they're looking for launch angle and exit velocity of the ball coming off the bat. And that's all they're looking for. And they're literally hitting the ball to the top of the net. So definitely a different dynamic that's going on. Yeah, it's interesting because I think there's this idea with the launch angle revolution, like, oh, just increase your launch angles. Like, well, you can go too far. And I think that approach just doesn't work for some hitters. Like you're asking a hitter to do something that might feel uh, really unnatural to them. Here's the other thing that I, I have a huge problem with, with, with these hitters today. And, you know, and you know how you make money in this game, you got to reinvent the wheel, right? That's, we just kind of threw out the T's and I sold you a T, you know, there's a bunch of T's on the market, right? And if everyone's kind of cookie cutting the hitting, but now they have this launch angle and, you know, hit the ball in the net and create these other, you know, devices that you see, like even golfers, right? You know, this will take away your slice, you know? So they're always trying to reinvent the wheel when it, when it comes to that stuff. And, and you know, let's be honest, you know, there's a lot of guys that are not Aaron judge, you know, or Mike Trouts or, or a lot, a lot of these guys, you know, a lot of guys want to play high school baseball. They want to play college baseball, you know, and the baseball comes into play, the baseball they're using at the major leagues is, you know, it's an inflated ball. I don't care what anyone says. The ball is a, it's a different ball that they're using at the major league level compared to what they're using in high school, compared to what they're using in college. And, you know, I get it in the pro level. The reason that they had to juice the ball is because, look, if, if I've gone up to the, and I had, I don't know how many at-bats I had in my career, probably 6,000 at-bats. Right? Let's just say that I had 1,000 at-bats off a right-hand pitcher. And of those 1,000 at-bats, you know, I hit 30% of them on the ground. They have 300 at-bats now of where I hit the ball on the ground. So you can see that if you hit the ball on the ground in the major leagues, there's a guy standing there. Why are they standing there? Because they have 300, 400, 500, 1,000 at-bats of this hitter. When he hits the ball on the ground, that's where he's hitting the ball. So what they have to do, the strikeouts went up, so they had to get the ball up in the air, and they, when that ball was hit up in the air, they wanted it to stay hit. So that trickles down to the, the college player, the high school player, or the select player, or the little league player, and now they're teaching this, this launch angle, and it's, it's a dangerous thing. Yeah, I'd see, it seems dangerous to me because it's just not a very balanced approach. I mean, I, I think about some of the most interesting young hitters in the game right now, and one of the first players who pops to mind for me is actually Bo Bichette. But from a Brewer's perspective, Keston here is another good example of this too. He hits the ball to all fields, and he can do it with power. And I think that's what makes him such an effective player because 
I think players like that are obviously going to neutralize the shift. So kind of stepping back a minute, if if you were the commissioner, let's say you're commissioner for a day and you can make some changes, would you ban or modify the rules on shifts in order to basically let players develop in a more sort of natural way as hitters? I think I would. I, I would, and I know that is because everyone wants information, everyone wants an edge, and if you have this, and, and it's the baseball's kind of fun when it's like that, when you're kind of scouting someone out, and then you're trying to put someone in the right position. Look, the Braves did it forever with those pitchers from Glavin and Maddox and, and those guys that were there. Look, they would get the outside corner, and then before they consolidated the umpires, the National League umpires, they were giving them bump, you know, two balls off the corner, and they could hit that pitch. And so the hitter has to make an adjustment to go hit that pitch. Well, they're not going to hit the ball. They're going to flare it to right, and they're going to have to really hit the ball to the opposite field, you know, to right center, and they plug and play those guys. But today, everyone has that information. So I don't know, because I always love strategy when it comes to that, but there's there's not much strategy in, in the game. It's, you know, velocity and hit the ball to the ballpark. And it's hard. It's hard. I mean, with the strikeouts being the way they are, you know, it's really hard to put a hit and run on, right? If a guy's throwing 96 miles an hour, 95, or I mean, the average velocity is, you know, almost up to 94 for right-handed pitch. That's, every, that's an, on average. On average, every right-hander throws 94 miles an hour. You know, case in point, when I was there, it was 90 or 91, you know? So, and I know that, that doesn't sound like a big jump, but it is. Yeah, Will and I were just talking about uh, some of the pitchers who are on the teams he played on in Milwaukee in the late 90s, and I was telling him, um, as I was a teenager at the time, I said, you know, Scott Carl was one of my favorite pitchers growing up, and I never realized until I was an adult and started you know, analyzing the game from a totally different perspective just how low the typical strikeout rate still was in the 90s. Like, I thought you had to go back to the 70s or the 80s to see 5Ks per nine and, and just these ridiculously low numbers, and I think we've kind of forgotten just how far along pitching has come in the last few years. Uh, last question for you, Jeff. Thinking about the quality of pitching now, if you were a big leaguer today, you were starting your career right now, how do you think you would fare comparing pitchers you face to the pitchers that you're seeing on big league mounds right now? I think I still would be, I think I would fare well. Um, I think the only problem is that probably my sight line would have to be raised a little bit as far as, you know, trying to, to not hit the ball on the ground as much, to just do line drives. And look, I'll, I'll take my chances. I'll, I'll face velocity because I could hit the ball ball field. So I still was very hard to defend. Uh, the velocity would be an interesting thing. But I think if you see it every day, the sticker shock. Look, when a guy was throwing 95 and, and you see it on the board, you're like, whoa, that's, that's, you know, that's the old quick bat, right, from Crash Davis. You know, when the guy's throwing hard, he's like, quick bat, quick bat, quick bat. You know, that, that was kind of the theory when the guy was throwing 95, 96, or 97 miles an hour. You know, that was a different animal. But if you just see it every day and it says 93, 94, 95, 93, 94, 95, it probably just is what it is, and you get used to it, and you get used to hitting at that velocity. Now, when a guy's throwing 99 or 100, you know, that's going to get your attention again. So I think that I would fare actually very well, especially if the ball's juiced. I'll take my chances because I was a great contact hitter. Yeah, that home run total. I mean, the, the, the 15 to 17 home runs you were hitting in your best season might have been 30 in a year with the 2019 baseball, which it's, it is ridiculous looking back at, at last season. The numbers at AAA and in the big leagues just went through the roof with that change. And it's one of those things I really wished we hadn't seen 
and I hope that we're getting a normal baseball in 2020 and beyond again. I think the game is a lot more balanced, a lot more fun uh, when it's not a, a rabbit ball. Well, and the integrity of the game too, right? I mean, you're looking at stats and, and historical stats and, you know, how does that kind of quantify into the, the game? And I, I don't know. I think that the, I think that, that Manfred did a good job. I think that he saw the strikeouts going, going up and he saw the, uh, the, the runs going down and look, as, as Americans, you know, we, we go to games, we want to see, we want to see scoring, right? You know, everyone likes a one nothing game once in a while because it's a battle, but for the most part, we don't want those every night. No, we, we definitely, definitely don't. We do, we do enjoy uh, the offensive environment. We see that a lot at Miller Park, of course, too. Uh, but Jeff, I really appreciate the time today and uh, stay safe in the weeks ahead. And hopefully we'll have baseball back here uh, in a matter of weeks instead of months. Great. Call me again. It was fun. All right. Well, that was a really fun interview, Will. We enjoyed getting a chance to catch up with Jeff uh, quite a bit. And, and again, I, I think back to what he was saying about synthesizing information for young hitters. It seems like it's easy for a young hitter to adopt the new technology and adopt new metrics. Like probably easier for a young player who's getting into, let's say, high school baseball now to just kind of just grow up infused with that technology than it would have been for players who were already in the big leagues when this tech was first being introduced to adapt to it. Uh, I think it's a unique challenge presented uh, for a guy who you know, played before all this stuff existed, but now coaches and scouts with it being so prevalent. Thinking about the that last question about how he'd fare against current big league pitching, I think Jeff Cirillo as a hitter is quite a bit like DJ LeMayhew, who we saw with the Yankees in 2019 have a, a big offensive season. And the rabbit ball, I think, was a, a huge part of that. I mean, you go back to all of DJ LeMayhew's pre-2019 production, his previous career high in home runs was 15 back in 2018 in Colorado, where Jeff spent a couple years of his own career. And you know, talking about a good contact hitter, could take walks, can use the entire field. I think we would have seen Jeff Cirillo hit 25 to 30 home runs if he were a peak player in 2019. Yeah, I could buy that. And I like the, I like the comparison that you just made too. Uh, and Cyril, I mean, he, he's a smart guy. He would have sort of, as he sort of said without saying, figured it out. And it, it's a different type of game. And it's a hard question probably for him to, to answer just because, hey, like we're talking about pitchers who are throwing close to 95 miles an hour on average these days, right? And you go back to when he was playing, like he said, guys were throwing 90 on average, 91. <laughs> and that is a huge difference. It doesn't sound like it is to like a, to like a casual person, but if you, if you know the game, you know that that's pretty stark. It's significant. Uh, that's a jump. And so I thought his point though was valid where it's like, okay, after a while you do get used to it. And I just fall back on the idea of him always being a really smart player. And so it's no surprise that he is where he is right now and he is doing what he's doing as far as still being involved in the game because something that you hit on Derek was just it's harder for guys to sort of adapt to a new way of doing something that they were so successful at doing in a different way way back when and so for him to be a guy that is sort of open to it um, open to different things open to learning about different things and sort of incorporating that with his own experiences I think that's pretty cool too. Um, he has 
certainly opinions on, on different things of where the game is right now. And I agree with him for the most part on, on a lot of what he said, but it should go also included with that is that he's also scouting right now and he's one of those guys who used to play. And so he's doing the thing of where he's incorporating both worlds of it. And he's sort of trying to get that two players and, and it's hard. It's a, it's a difficult task, but it sounds like he's doing it correctly. When I look back at the late 90s Brewers, the the team that immediately pops into my head is the 98 team. Uh, you know, I mentioned when we were talking to Jeff just how low strikeout rates were on that pitching staff. Like the Scott Carl stats are not what I thought they were in my mind. When I review them now, years later, uh, I see a guy who had a sub five Ks per nine strikeout rate, which is incredibly low. You know, you look at, at some of the other pitchers, Steve Woodard and, and Jeff Juden were the rotation leaders in strikeout rate. They were just a tick above seven Ks per nine. And that's where usually a back-end starter falls now just 22 years later. It's just incredible how much the strikeout really has become a huge part of the game. It's become so accepted. And we're talking about transformations that really began back in the Moneyball era, right? When the importance of taking walks was fully realized and uh, the subsequent realization years after that was that an out is an out for the most part so if you can make more hard contact by swinging away it's okay to trade a few strikeouts for uh, extra base hits and hopefully home runs and I think that's where that tolerance for strikeouts has come but it's also pitching getting better too the actual talent the velocity differences uh, are substantial and it is weird looking into a major league bullpen now you know, if, the, if the average right-handed pitcher is throwing 94, the average bullpen has multiple relievers capable of touching 100 in it right now. Like That wasn't at all the case 10 years ago even, let alone 20 and 25 years ago. I mean, all you have to do is look at the, the Brewers' uh, bullpen for what it was supposed to be 2020 right now. And they're thinking about like not having guys on the opening day roster who have like these insane K rates in the, at the minor league level. And it's like, holy, like, look at these numbers. And there's, there's a few of them like that. Um, Devin Williams comes to mind from last year. Um, Fire Eyes and same, same thing. I mean, these guys have huge K numbers and they're like, yeah, maybe they'll make the roster. You know, we'll see them maybe in a few weeks into the season, that sort of thing. And it's like, <laughs> plug those guys into that 1998 team that you're talking about and uh, Bob Wickman has some competition for that closer role <laughs> yeah I don't think Bob Wickman would be on a big league roster it, it, now this is the thing when you're comparing players from different eras you have to assume development that's in line with how players currently in the big leagues were developed right so maybe Bob Wickman would have thrown a lot harder maybe Bob Wickman would have been um, different in terms of his, his body composition, right? 20 years later, who knows? Like there's a lot of like butterfly effect type changes if you really start to uh, mess around with moving players into a different era. That's why I think some of those arguments are actually kind of funny where it's like, well, the modern pitcher would just blow away hitters from the 50s and 60s. It's like, well, the, the hitters from the 50s and 60s, if they were playing actually in the modern era, they would have ate differently. They would have worked out differently. They would have learned the game differently. So it's not really an apples to apples comparison. No, not at all. I, I, I feel this, I have the same exact feeling on you on that. Like you'll never hear me 
say anything remotely like that because of the same reasons i mean like you're not exactly cloning somebody from like 1961 and then plugging them against you know um whoever uh from you know the pedro martinez of 1999 or something like that like that's just you know it's like i don't even know how that's an even like a a fun intellectual exercise or, or a conversation to have even yeah it just fills time i guess yeah if you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction you want treatment asap That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel anytime. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com slash Brewers for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash Brewers for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. I I think of all the things that disappoint me the most when I look back at the late 90s, early 2000s Brewers is I see that Diamond MB double bat logo with the green bats and the green trim around the M and the B and just the angled letters. And it makes me angry, Will, because the Brewers have such an iconic logo that we all love so much. And for some reason, and I don't know the reason yet, someday maybe I will know, they switched to that diamond for a while. But I guess if I had to make it like a silver lining sort of takeaway, it's that at least they weren't, wearing the great logo while the organization went through such a prolonged stretch of futility. Yeah, that's a good way to look at things. That's that's very optimistic. So like the the logo itself, it's only known for like success, good times, unprecedented level of success for that for that matter. That's a nice way to think of that about things. Um but yeah, those those were probably could you go as far as to say like the brewers have like the best logo and the worst logos of all time? I think it's exaggerating too much on the end. I, I think the the ball and glove logo has a legitimate case in sport to be one of the best logos of all time. With you on that, yeah. I truly believe that. I think if you, if you talk to people outside of Wisconsin who are not Brewers fans, who are just fans of baseball in general or fans of sport in general, they appreciate that logo much more than the average logo. Um, I don't know if non-Brewers fans would look at the MB Diamond and hate it as much as I do. Like, I, I just don't, I think that's, I think that level of hate is unique to being a, a Brewers fan. I don't know, man. I didn't grow up a Brewers fan and I sure hated it. It was disgusting. Um, it made me, it made me, put it this way, Derek, it made me not want to like the Brewers. Well, <laughs> that's how, that's, <laughs> to give you somebody who didn't grow up a Brewers fan's perspective, it made me not want to like them. I mean, they had a few players, Jeff Cirillo, of course, among them, and Jeff Jenkins was breaking in at that time. It was kind of the, the peak of Jeremy Burnett's. Uh, Dave Nilsson was a really nice player. He was in your article. You did the uh, all-time franchise best team with the uniform number restrictions that we did in our draft last week, but you did it just as one team. Uh, And Dave Nilsson was the backup catcher. And he's one of those guys, he he wasn't around very long, but he was a very productive player while he was here. He's kind of another one of those familiar names and faces from what is essentially a lost era in franchise history. Yeah, I mean, he put up, talk about guys who put up consecutive years of just 
find offensive production. He's right there. Um, really good offensive production, especially from the catcher position. Obviously, he played elsewhere, of course, because of the defensive liability that he was at times uh, as a catcher. Um, but yeah, if and in the and in the catcher category for the Brewers, you don't necessarily you have a couple of guys like a Ted Simmons, um, who is one of the best ever at catcher, but clearly more as a Cardinal than a Brewer for his career. Um, and so the list isn't very long at catcher for Bre- for the best Brewers of all time. And, and Nilsson is, is one of them, is one of those guys, played a long time with, with uh, Milwaukee. And again, just year after year, his offense productions, you kind of knew what you were going to get. I think the other uh, player from that era, who I remember people having a lot of jerseys of this guy, was John Jaha. Like that was the beginning of the Scherzi era, by the way, the late 90s. We didn't really see those prior to that. And you know, John Jaha had two seasons in which he hit 30-plus home runs. He hit 34 with the Brewers in 96, had one more good season, actually made the AL All-Star team in 1999 as a member of the A's. But a lot of injuries kind of just marred his career. And I was kind of surprised looking back at his, his peak years, his slash lines, his overall offensive performance was a level better than I'd remembered. Yeah, and that makes sense to me because the more I talk to people who grew up as Brewers fans and we kind of just like reflect back on some guys and share opinions on them and look back on the stats, he's somebody that people just tell me like, yeah, no matter what those numbers tell you, we wanted more. Like we expected a little bit more certain years and we definitely wanted more from him. But again, you look at also like the the strike shortened season hurt him too, right? Um, so that may have taken some, some of his numbers away, but again, just, he put up those couple of years, like you said, just the, the longevity wasn't there as far as consistency and production year to year and putting up the numbers that he was capable of, of what his potential would indicate. And what the heck is going on with this guy? He was drafted in 1984 and he didn't debut in the big leagues until 1992. That's a long, long road to the big leagues. Yeah, it really is. That's something that I'm going to plug into newspapers.com pretty soon <laughs> to do some research on. <laughs> That's interesting, man. Um, well, yeah, they've had they, like the fun part about like the the '90s Brewers is it's like, oh, remember that guy? And it's like, yeah, he played for the Brewers for a couple of years, and he wasn't as bad as I thought he was, or you know, like, and that's kind of putting too fine a point on it. But like, there are guys like you know Daryl Hamilton, for example. Like, I think people kind of take for granted of of some of the seasons that he was able to put together for the Brewers in the '90s. And so I think there are just a couple of guys like that that are just like really interesting and just kind of fun to look back on and and think about and kind of forget like maybe how bad the record was and just look at those players and like you know just it's just fun to look at what they were what they were doing in the brewers uniform during that time i think i can sum this up with one more hopefully coherent thought but i remember as a kid in milwaukee there's a radio station it's still there it used to be called laser 103 i don't know what they call it anymore um but it's it's like a rock station and their morning show, it was Bob and Brian for years. I don't know if they're still on that channel or if they're somewhere else. This is stuff that I would have looked up. I'd thought of it before this moment. They had this thing they did. I think it was the third guy on their show was the PA announcer for the Bucks. His name was Eric. But anyway, Eric would have a segment like once a week or once a month. I don't remember how often it was, but it was called Eric is Thinking of a Brewer. And it was just callers dialing into the morning show 
naming a random brewer trying to get the one that Eric was thinking of. So I'm sure he wrote it down on a piece of paper or something. And they just, you know, when someone finally guessed right, they got a prize. And the names I see on here just remind me of that game because, yeah, the recall of how little time some of these players spent in the big leagues or uh, how oddly important they were to these particular teams, like how much playing time they got despite not being very good. Uh, those things are, are just kind of funny to me. And you go back and you see some names that are guys that hung around, of course, as managers like Mike Matheny. Um, you know, he's, of course, now in a second managerial job in Kansas City. Um, some guys that, that bounced around as position coaches in there as well. Uh, a guy like Ronnie Belliard was on a few of those teams. I think he had a little more success even after he left Milwaukee. He spent a little time in Colorado. He was an all-star in Cleveland. So you did have a few guys who, after they got out of Milwaukee, kind of had a second wind elsewhere as well. Yeah, and you also have a couple of guys like um, who experienced a lot of success and then wound up in Milwaukee toward the tail end of their career and had like some of these resurgent seasons, like a Willie Randolph. Like, where did that come from? Sort of, sort of season. And so that's all. That's always fun for me too. And I think that those type of teams sort of lend themselves to to those type of players because that's. It's kind of where like the career sort of ends for some people sometimes is is joining a team that has a spot open like that. And I wanted Alex Ochoa to stay in Milwaukee and play a lot coming out of that 1999 season. He hit 300 at a 404 on base, did that in just 329 plate appearances. Uh, but he was a one and done player in Milwaukee, ended up in Cincinnati the following year, ended up in Colorado later in his career. Did come back for a, a brief stint with the Brewers in 2002. What is it with the Brewers and Rockies, where former Brewers end up in Colorado and, and, and former Rockies end up in Milwaukee? Seems like there's a, a weird path there. Maybe members of the front office at one point work together and they split. Like that, that tends to happen you know, even today too, where you just have similar views of the player pool driving personnel decisions. Uh, Will, before we sign off, there were a few more adjustments to the roster that took place late last week. Uh, five players optioned down to the minors. J.P. Fireisen, Eric Yardley, Angel Perdomo, and Bobby Wall, along with catcher Jacob Nottingham. You know, Each of those four relievers, I think, has a path back to the big leagues in 2020 once things are, are up and running. And as I think about those four players, the one who I thought was maybe more of a, a lock to get that opportunity on opening day was Bobby Wall. So I think he was the one I was most surprised to see get sent down. Uh, but what did you see from Wall during spring training uh, before things came to a halt? He was healthy. That was the biggest thing. That's what you wanted to see at first. That's the first thing that you wanted to cross off your list. You wanted to see, okay, how is he after coming off of not being able to pitch at all last year because of a torn ACL? It's not an arm injury, of course, but it's still something that... He robbed him of an entire season so you wanted to be sure where he was at velocity wise and and all of that really checked out he looked good the the results are meaningless because it was only a few appearances four appearances that he made in spring training uh, for the Brewers so that didn't really matter so much as it was what his fastball looked like which was really sharp had, had the velocity to it sometimes there were a couple of outings where the command wasn't quite there but for the most part, he looked good. Um, and again, he's a guy that, like you said, Derek, he's going to be involved. Um, I'm not sure if that outrules him for the opening day roster, whenever the opening day is or not. But he's a guy that's going to contribute for the Brewers uh, this year regardless. 
Yeah, JP Fireisen, Eric Yardley, Anel Perdomo. I, I think they're like a notch below, but still capable of of doing some of the things that um, I expect from Bobby Wall in the nearer term future. I think of that group, Fireisen might be the guy that has the highest ceiling, but Perdomo is not that far behind him. Anel Perdomo, it, it seemed like he was one who kind of stood out in the eyes of Craig Council this spring. No question about it. These are procedural moves as well. So I don't want to put too much stock into like, okay, this guy was sent to San Antonio. This guy was sent to Biloxi. I think a lot of this will we'll find the, the real reasonings behind certain moves. And just once we get more information and, and once we get a clear indication of when baseball is actually going to start up again. But yeah, Perdomo, man, he he lit it up. I mean, this is a big guy, 6'6", close to 200 pounds. And he looks at, man, he's an intimidating guy on the mound. Doesn't say a whole lot in the clubhouse, but but when he gets on the mound, man, he's something else. It certainly caught Craig Council's attention because when I asked about Perdomo and a couple of other guys in the beat asked about him, he didn't hesitate in saying that this is a guy that's making us think a little bit. Um, and he's a guy who's battling and he's definitely put himself in the competition uh, for a role in the bullpen. And Council had made those remarks and, and statements before spring training was cut short. So that gives you an indication of just what they think about him. And they get these guys for reasons, Derek, right? And Perdomo was certainly a guy that they saw uh, from his history with uh, the Blue Jays prior to joining Milwaukee of, hey, this is a guy that we could work with. His his walk rate is, is on the high side of things, but that strikeout rate can't be ignored. And there's certainly things there to build off of. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yardley is interesting as well. I think he's a little bit more of a, a specialist type reliever. Doesn't throw particularly hard, but uh, could be kind of an up and down guy for the Brewers eventually as well. And I think uh, the important thing you pointed out there too, with regard to the procedural nature of these moves, this is a really unusual time. Teams have players in camp who were on minor league deals that were uh, including non-roster invites and they had opt-out dates in their contracts and just trying to figure out how that works and trying to have more time to make a decision on those players and and not expose them to waivers or risk losing them in free agency. Like all of those things are kind of wrapped around some of these decisions as well. So I don't think every move we saw in the last week or two was necessarily something that at face value makes perfect sense. Yeah. And they're going to need these guys regardless of how long the season is too. I'd go as far as to say that just because of the the nature of pitching and how you can never have too much and these guys play will play an important role uh, more often than not specifically even a guy like Perdomo who's a left-hander um, which I neglected to mention at first but that's also a big part of Perdomo's game is that he gives him another lefty to, to kind of be intrigued about and to sort of utilize once he is with the team kind of alluded to this in our interview with Jeff Cirillo a little bit earlier I mean most of us are now kind of in the shelter in place um just isolation mode at this point and you know i think it's appropriate for us to just shout out some local businesses who have been uh doing their best to keep things running smoothly i I was over uh, at metcalf's market there's two in madison there's one in wauwatosa you know it's a locally owned grocery store they've been in business since 1917 and uh, one thing I really appreciated shopping there today, and this was the case when I was in there last week as well, is they actually have two employees dedicated to cleaning carts by hand. As every single cart comes back into the store, they're sanitizing carts, every single one, which 
is a big step in in trying to you know fight the pandemic and it's just uh an attention to detail that I really appreciate. Like anybody out there who's working in healthcare, who's working in food service, working in grocery stores, driving trucks. I mean, we really appreciate everything you're doing to keep things running as best you can uh, in such uh, uncertain times. And I know that for local businesses, Will, like restaurants and bars, especially small businesses, this is going to be a really rough period. And anything we're able to do to support small businesses and and the people who rely on those places for income uh, goes a very long way in our community right now. Uh, so I've been kind of looking around, trying to find ways to either, if there's carryout options available at local places, or even just the opportunity to buy some gift cards online to support those businesses, it's absolutely something to do. Um, the other place that I just wanted to shout out, I know Blue's Egg in Shorewood, their location is still doing carryout breakfast and dinner. Uh, I think we're at the point, though, where as you kind of look for different businesses, you kind of have to just keep checking their websites, checking their Twitter accounts and Facebook pages just to see how the hours have been limited, You know what kinds of services are still available because things are, are changing day to day. But uh, it's been really impressive to see some of the things uh, that people are doing in the community to really kind of help everybody along. Yeah, no question. My heart goes out to, to everybody like that. And if you have... If you're listening and you are somebody who owns a place like that or works at a place that's being affected and need the support or would like for us to help in any way, feel free to just drop us a line and be more than happy to. And honestly, be more than happy to take out personally from from your place. It's always (laughs) great to diversify your your palate a little bit, too. So now all seriousness, though, uh, uh, certainly so, so challenging. So heart goes out to it. And like I said, if, the, if there's anybody who is involved or unfortunately affected, uh, feel free to reach out. Uh, we'll, and we'll certainly do our part. Yeah, you can find Will on Twitter at Will Salmon. I'm at Derek Van Riper. If you want to get a subscription to The Athletic, you can do that at theathletic.com slash 422. You get 40% off. Uh, but if you got questions for us, send those our way on Twitter as well. Uh, if you're enjoying the pod and you're listening on a platform that allows you to rate and review it, please take a moment to do that. We'd greatly appreciate it. Thanks again to Jeff Cirillo for taking the time to join us on this episode. For Will Salmon, I'm Derek Van Riper. Thanks for listening. We're back with you next week from Section 422. Stay safe out there.